if you are suddenly changing a page on a particular date, you will not have had that page re-scraped and re-categorized by the search engine to show up to maintain that positioning. So when you change that page on, let's say it's changing on Friday, you can't say, hey, Google, I'm changing my page at 10 a.m. on Friday. Please, please, you know, rescan it and, you know, make sure that I'm up to date. Growing a business requires a holistic approach that extends beyond sales and marketing. This approach needs alignment among people, processes, and technologies. So if you're a business owner, operations, or finance leader looking to learn growth strategies from your peers and competitors, you're tuned into the right podcast. Welcome to the WBS Podcast, where scalable growth using business systems is our number one priority. Now, here is your host, Sam Gupta. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the WBS Podcast. I'm Sam Gupta, your host and principal consultant at independent ERP and digital transformation consulting firm, Elevate IQ. Do you know an e-commerce platform that was the hottest before the dot-com bubble? Do you know an e-commerce platform that has personalization built as part of its core before personalization was a thing? Do you know an e-commerce platform that had a market valuation of $11 billion, but now has less than $100 million in revenue? Do you know an e-commerce platform that has a very tight relationship with Microsoft and is often installed with Microsoft Dynamics 365? Do you know an e-commerce platform that is really strong with multi-country workflows in regulated industries? If you guessed Intershop, then you are right. In today's episode, we invited a panel of industry experts for a live discussion on LinkedIn to conduct an independent review of Intershop's capabilities. We covered many grounds, including its unique position in the market with B2B companies and its history about how it was one of the hottest product once upon a time, but then ended up being just a moderate success among e-commerce platforms. Finally, we compared its capabilities with some of the modern headless platforms such as Commerce Tools, Fabric, and VTX. With that, let's get to the conversation. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's show. And if you are joining for the first time, this is part of our e-commerce series for which we meet every Wednesday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern. We review one vendor or solution related to e-commerce. And for today, we have a very interesting vendor, and they are one of the oldest one. It's called uh, Intershop. So we are going to have a lot of fun discussing that. Before we do that, we are going to start with everybody's intros. I am going to start with my intro. If you don't know me, I'm Sam Gupta, principal at Elevate IQ. Elevate IQ is the independent ERP e-commerce digital consulting firm. On that note, I am going to move to Robert for his intro. Hey, guys. It's Robert Brown from Robert Brown e-commerce uh, consultancy. I specialize in small to medium-sized B2C and uh, D2C companies uh, growing their e-commerce solutions. All right, amazing. Thank you so much for being here, Robert. And if you're in the audience and joining for the first time, make sure you guys post your questions and comments. We typically try to cover them during the show. If you run out of time, we'll make sure 
that you receive your answers. On that note, Robert, I am going to start with the quick briefing. Then um, we can discuss the research that you have done or the experiences you have had with this solution. We are also going to compare this with um, some of the other ones that we have reviewed so far. Now, here, when we look at Intershop, I think this used to be one of the hottest, hottest e-commerce platform back in the days, I guess, when we talk about dot-com bubble, and we are going to be talking about their evolution overall. Um, when we look at the founder's journey, and this, I guess, we have reviewed when we were... Um, Discussing demandware uh, in the case of Salesforce Commerce, and then uh, the founder also founded new store. So his name keeps popping up in this podcast. So this is the, the, the first one that he founded. Obviously, this company is from Germany. And surprisingly enough, and one of the things that is most shocking for me is, you know, all of the three companies that he founded, they still exist, all of them. And they are still selling. They are still doing this. And Intershop is the most fascinating one. Because obviously, this is the, the oldest and the legacy technology, but companies still find value in the stack as of today. Now, when you compare this with where they are really present and where I have personally seen them, obviously, this is going to be very enterprise-grade technology as well. And in the enterprise e-commerce market, there are a lot of solutions out there. These guys started, I believe they were the first one. And the reason why they were so hard back in the days is because these guys were the ones who started with the whole concept of personalization. Before that, you didn't have personalization. I don't know, Robert, maybe you probably know. And I don't know when Oracle ATG started. My understanding is that they probably started after this and IBM Commerce. They, I don't know whether they were the first ones or these guys were the first ones, but you know, surprisingly enough, Oracle Commerce is probably not going to be there. Uh, but these guys are still around. No, it, it's you know, so the idea of personalization actually had a, a multi-point origin, and so in, Intercommerce was one of them, and yeah. then be, but they are European based, and then yeah. there's you know U.S. based who also had that, and so you know the way European countries network and the tools that they use is very, very much a personal relationship, much less so than, than here in the U S. Yeah. Yeah. Completely uh, agree. Uh, obviously Europe in general is a very traditional market. That's what I have heard from a lot of people who have done business in uh, Europe. Uh, I have some familiarity, but I am not, Super intimate, but some of the specifics that people talk about is in the Europe, you are not going to find people who are going to be super pumped about using their credit cards. Unlike US, where, you know, you have a lot more people who are slightly more uh, risk taking that probably does not exist in uh, the Europe market. The other things that you're going to notice in the Europe market, as you correctly pointed out, Robert, is going to be that these countries are obviously very small. They have very small market. So typically, the products that are designed for the Europe market are going to have the language support, the localization, the taxation for a lot of countries because they have to sell uh, sometimes in five countries just to uh, make living for their own family, I guess. Uh, that's how small some of those countries are. Uh, so on your comment related to the U.S. solution, do you know which solution was that in the U.S. at that time? So I, I don't remember which one was first. I know that Oracle had it. I know that there were some independent solutions that had it. You know, a lot of people were actually developing. So 
years ago, some of the companies that I work for like EDS. And so we had our own web solution for EDS. Yeah. And we were actually developing it back then before they were even bought by GM. Very interesting. Yes, EDS. Now nobody talks about EDS, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I mean, obviously. Well, they're gone. But, uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So very interesting commentary there and the history lesson too. Uh, so some more interesting details about this solution. I don't know how long they have had this Microsoft relationship. And obviously, Microsoft is a very unique sort of company in the e-commerce game. And the reason for that is because, you know, as we have analyzed a lot of different solutions, they were primarily designed for either Java, JavaScript. I mean, that's where commerce was in general. But obviously, you know, when I look at the, the software development market, it's always 50-50, right? You have 50 Java, 50 .NET. That's how I used to think back in the days. Uh, and even today, obviously, you are going to have decent amount of split. In fact, if you look at any of the ERP companies, they are probably going to be on .NET, right? Uh, and that's why .NET is um, so prevalent. So it's always surprising, okay, which are the common solutions that are selling in the Microsoft space, because obviously they have to be there. So here, Intershop seems to have very tight alignment with Microsoft for some reason. And I don't know why that is. And I don't know if this is really built on .NET. I could not find those details. For example, when we reviewed Sitecore, Sitecore also had very tight alignment. But Intershop seems to have far tighter alignment than Sitecore with Microsoft, and they are literally selling together. Uh, and I don't know why that would be there, to be honest. I would think that the natural correlation would be with SAP, because obviously SAP is a German company, this is a German company. So then that seems like a very easy marriage, but some for some reason, they have far tighter alignment <laughs> with Microsoft. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why they did. Um, but everything that I've seen about Sitecore just aligns completely with the European business model. And, and again, I will say this, it is very much relationship-based. You know, the, the names that they have, you can very easily be misled, you know, thinking, oh, wow, they're so big. Well, yeah. okay, so they've got BMW, but it's actually BMW Classics Group. So it's not BMW overall. It's just the yeah. BMW Classics groups, which deals with their older vehicles. It's basically like a, a support shop for their, their antique vehicles. Um, they do have Rockwall wool. And a lot of people don't know who Rockwool is. So Rockwool is basically uh, an installation company similar to like, you know, the pink company here in the U.S., not naming names. So, you know, you'll put that in the walls to do sound deadening and uh, temperature insulation. Yeah. Um, you know, they do have HP, which is interesting. They have Merck vaccines, not yeah. all of Merck, but just Merck vaccines. They did have many, but many dumped them. Um, so it's, it's interesting some of the stuff that they have. So, you know, what, what I've found is in Europe, I lived there for a while. I lived in yeah. Germany. I lived in Switzerland. Um, I yeah. have you know, some friends there, and some of my relationships last many, many decades. Is they expect you to come back and visit them on a regular basis, and and press the flesh, and have lunch with them, and you know, it's it's very much this personal kind of thing. Whereas in the U.S., it's like, where's my ROI? Yeah. You know, what what are you enhancing to deliver more value financially to my company? And so when I look at them. They are definitely on the smaller enterprise level. They are not in the, say, um, you know, FTSE 100. Yeah. 
right? But, you know, they're in the smaller enterprise level and, you know, looking at who they have in their in their herd of companies, they're they are less known here in the U.S. I it's been a while, so I'm not up to date on all the companies in Europe. Um, I don't yeah. invest there. I don't trade there anymore. So, um, you know, the size of these companies, they are not recognizable to me usually. Um, but you know, the only one that I see here and that's you know easily recognizable in the U.S. is Rockwool and HP. Right. So I am going to do a little uh, walkthrough of the commentary that you just mentioned. So one of the point, uh, you know, point of clarification there. Uh, I think you meant Intershop. Um, so, you know, uh, you mentioned Sitecore. So I think you meant Intershop. Okay. So Intershop, now, when you look at it, and, and I completely agree that, you know, there could be a personalized, personal element uh, to their sales cycle as well. Uh, but when I have spoken to the customers and if I ask about the strength of the solution and why they had selected this solution. So there were some very specific comments. And I'll mention that. And then we'll do a walkthrough of these companies, whether they fit in that, that business model or not. Okay. So number one thing that these customers mentioned with Intershop, Intershop is really good when you are going to have very global uh, company where you require a lot of different approval flows. It is really designed for B2B business model, not really for B2C. When you are going to be selling in a lot of different regulated markets, where you require many different approval flows from the product release perspective. For example, if you are selling in the medical device space, okay, then this solution is going to make sense just because of the kind of you know permission flow it has. It also does really well, uh, you know, from the taxation perspective in the European countries, and that's why if you the companies that are doing business in Europe, they are probably going to like this because of the taxation structure. Now we have a lot of different solutions that are that can probably do similar things as Intershop. But I mean, let's say if you talk about five, 10 years back, probably companies didn't have as many choices. So now if you look at the business models and the companies that you mentioned, Robert, so one of the layers that I am seeing there is, yes, that is going to be more at the sub enterprise level, but that sub enterprise is going to have a little B2B layer. And when I say B2B, so even if you have, let's say the, you are selling it to contractors in the construction, in the HVAC space, okay? So that's where this solution is going to fit in. That's why BMW, you know, and by the way, Commerce Tools is going to claim that BMW is my customer <laughs> because they have, they have already installed there, right? So I don't believe that, uh, you know, they may have replaced Intershop. Intershop may be there in the B2B business unit and B2C business unit commerce tools might be there, but now commerce tools is building the B2B function as well. So I don't know if they are going to replace Intershop or not, but for the most part, when I look at the Intershop business model and, and, and the, the data model, it's really aligned for those B2B franchise-centric business model in my mind. That's how I would think of Intershop. And I think some of the ones that you mentioned, I think they sort of line up with that as well. Yeah, you know, what, one of the other things that um, I found in here is, so there's a specific review, and we'll go over that later, but th this is something that I want to get out there up front for people to think about. This yeah. is the review. It says, extremely heavy solution uses custom-made Intershop Studio, which is Eclipse-based, yep. unstable, yep. and not a good tool in 2020 compared to other IDEs. So creating their own custom IDE, yep. I find interesting. And that is the red flag, I guess. You know, I would definitely have that. And I remember that review as well. 
So that's probably going to be a limitation that you need to keep in mind. Uh, and I don't know how large their consulting community is. And typically, when you are doing your own development, you probably require a lot of help. Um, so obviously, the community is not going to be as strong as some of the other solutions that are going to be slightly more open. Here, you are really relying on either InterShop professional services team uh, or one of their partners to be able to help you uh, with the development. Right. And, and so that raises an interesting question. So identifying Eclipse, which is typically a Java IDE. Yeah, yeah. But they're aligned with Microsoft. <laughs> like exactly. Okay, what does that mean? I don't know, <laughs> but it certainly raises some interesting questions. And that's where my uh, take is on the solution. To be honest, okay, so most likely they are probably going to be Java based because they are using Eclipse as uh, mm-hmm. the way you pointed out. Yeah. Uh, but then Microsoft is going to be .NET, so you are looking at two different rivals right there. So yeah. I just don't know, and we don't have enough background whether they are really Java or .NET, or maybe they have created some sort of, uh, you know, poor thing to eclipse, you know, from the .NET perspective. I don't know, but something is going on that is not right, uh, you know, about this. Okay, uh, so if you don't have uh, any other commentary, let's um, let's review uh, the slides. So here we have some uh, history, uh, and this is the obviously the company was uh, headquartered in. Um, Gina within the state of some somewhere in Germany. Um, customers include large corporations such as HP, as Robert pointed out, BMW, Worth, and Deutsche Telekom, I guess. Um, and from the regional perspective, they are in Europe. That's number one, and US as well as uh, Asia. Um, so here we have some more interesting commentary. Company daily rules to $11 billion in 2000, okay? Right now, their revenue is like what? 30 million euros. Uh, so obviously, that is very small market share. They are simply serving, uh, you know, the customers that they have. They are acquiring some some as well. But obviously, this was a massive, massive valuation. But then, you know, it, it, it's claiming that it was, um, it fell to a penny stock. And I don't know if they were, they ever bounced back to that level. Um, they are saying at one point, uh, a profit warning by Intershop caused widespread losses for other tech companies. So I think they were the ones who actually announced. So it was, I guess, uh, the way the commentary read, I think it was a miss from one of the founders. And then founders actually decided to leave. This company obviously didn't have as much experience with the finance and marketing. So they probably did some something here. And that's probably the reason this all happened. Uh, but obviously, from the technology perspective, they were super sharp. Uh, but this is a very interesting um, event. Uh, in, in. So, okay, so that's why even SAP lost some market share uh, because of their announcement. Um, so that would have been fun, I guess. <laughs> the, the company survived the crash but was able to keep operating and to continue development of its products. And they are saying about 30 spinoffs were founded in the process. So I don't know what that means. Um, I don't know if this is because of the founders left and they all founded some other companies. That could be true. I know at least a couple that were founded because of this. So that's a very interesting commentary as well. And this is the revenue from 2022. And uh, this is for the first six months. So we have roughly what 18.5 million euro for first six months. That's going to take us to roughly 37 million euro. In revenue, obviously, that's very small compared to where they were in 2000. But they are not growing. I, I think they are simply retaining their market share. They have had some growth recently, 
because of their cloud patch, but overall, there's not much going on there with this company. So part of it, I think, has to... So if we look at where they are, so Jenna is kind of in the middle of nowhere for, for what people know of Germany. So yeah. it it is in more of like the southwestern part of Germany. So it's closer mm-hmm. to Kechna. It's uh, like east of Dusseldorf and south uh, southwest of Berlin. Um, it's So if anybody knows Germany, it's like uh, it is west of Dresden and Leipzig and north um, east of Frankfurt. And so yeah. when you look here, it's kind of like, you know, not big name cities or towns from yeah. an American perspective. When I lived there, I lived in a town called um, Braunschweig, which is uh, near Hanover, and it's about three hours north. And, you know, so, you know, looking at this, like they're out of the way. And so if I think about them, if, if we start putting these these data points together, yeah, the smaller enterprise level companies and a company that is an out of the way location in Germany, it seems like it's more like a family owned enterprise um, that is built on personal relationships that just kind of does what the the board or the owners wanted to do but it's not making an aggressive stance against the competition okay so we are going to read some more commentary and then we are going to ask you if you still feel uh, mm-hmm. uh you know about this point because you know one of the commentary that read the, about the intershop's success in 2000 okay the reason why they rose to 11 billion dollar is because most of the other companies from germany they were trading or doing business inside germany this was the company that actually went out of their way to do a lot of trade in the US. And that's the reason why their valuation, and by the way, $11 billion, when we are talking about that's a dollar, that's not an euro. So, you know, this is not the Europe market. These, This was the company that actually did business in the US. And that's why they were so powerful and successful back then. But after that, I think they made some commentary and because of that, you know, something happened, I guess. Uh, but I'm not too sure about that comment. So, so I don't know. Let's review that commentary first. And then we'll come back to this comment as well. Yeah. Um, so here, uh, you know, over the recent years, Intershop has established itself as one of the leading providers of B2B commerce solution. The greatest opportunities uh, here are in B2B space due to the size of the target market and the number of. So this is some B2B commentary. Everybody talks about how big B2B market is, uh, which is great. Uh, you know, this is coming from 2021. Some more commentary here. A key component for achieving uh, this goal is a strategic partnership with Microsoft. Okay, so this is where I think they started doing this somewhere in 2016. And I don't know what that, uh, you know, event was. Uh, that seems to be lining up with Microsoft's cloud strategy. In 2018, I think Microsoft announced that, you know, they were going to go with your Microsoft Dynamics 365. 2016 is where they must have started thinking about it. Um, so there are some data points that are lining up here. So I don't know where this is coming from, but this is very interesting. But, uh, you know, Microsoft Azure Cloud, I guess 2016 was probably the year when you had this big shift in, in, in the cloud, especially when we talk about transactional applications, ERP, e-commerce. Uh, before that, nobody was taking cloud seriously, but 2016, uh, you know, uh, it was a massive, massive movement. Um, so here, uh, some more data points here. This creates a seamless link between Intershock commerce platform and the Microsoft Azure Cloud and integrated solutions such as, uh, you know, ERP and software, Microsoft Dynamics 365, in addition, joint marketing and sales activities are carried out 
the comment solution has now by now uh, become an integrated part of the Microsoft Azure cloud solution portfolio. Just one more data point for you, Robert, from the ERP perspective. Okay, and I don't know how much you know about the Microsoft uh, Dynamics 365 solution. It does really, really well in the architectural engineering space where you are going to have very heavy project management as well as a little sort of B2B. Uh, so they do really well. And that's why we are seeing a lot more logos, uh, you know, especially in the HVAC construction space. So not really the pure play construction, uh, but when we talk about the architectural engineering and these HVAC sort of firms, they are going to be, and by the way, uh, your um, AVs, uh, they are going to be on Microsoft Dynamics a lot. So there will be some correlation uh, between these two solutions. And, and that's why some of those logos are actually from that market, uh, in that list, the one that you were pointing. So here, some more commentary here. The focus is on production and wholesale companies with the revenue. So they are talking about production and wholesale companies. Uh, but, you know, the wholesale could be all over the place as well. Here with the revenues of at least uh, 100 million euro is their target market with multiple sales channels. And that's where their sweet spot is that the sales channels have to be a lot of them as complex business models and organizational structures. The geographic focus of intershop sales activities are the development e-commerce markets in the Europe and uh, those are the regions. Intershop markets, DAC, network of B2B commerce experts with a focus on production and wholesale. Uh, so they seem to be repeating that term production and wholesale, which means manufacturing and distribution. Here they are saying, for example, the current e-commerce solutions from this one uh, quadrant, the beverage manufacturer. So, okay, this is a very interesting commentary. And, and, and Robert, I don't know if you are familiar with the solution called Nevo. That is another e-commerce platform. <laughs> and the interesting part is that they are built on top of your in, uh, Intershop platform. Can you believe it? Interesting. Okay. <laughs> and they are decent, to be honest. Okay, they are more of the SMB player, in my mind, where I have personally seen in the distribution, they are present in the industrial uh, distribution space a lot, and they are built on top of Intershop. And I don't know if we have any other solutions here. Yeah, but rest of them are probably the customers. But Mevo is the e-commerce platform that is built on top of Intershop. It's fascinating. That is. Okay. Um, some more comments here. So this is the history. So here it's saying it's it's uh, stock price skyrocketed at one point time point. The firm had a stock market value of $11.1 billion, and that is March 10, 2000. Intershop's revenue increased from uh, 0.54 million euro in 1996 to nearly 123 million euro in 2000. That was the revenue jump. You know, that's from nowhere to like $100 million in revenue. That's a big deal. Uh, 100 million euro, by the way, not just dollar. While its worldwide employment rose from 43 to over a thousand employees. Again, big deal there. And I think they must be like commerce tools of those days. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the way um, the companies are performing as of today, when you look at the commerce players uh, of today. Uh, regarded as blue chip among the German new economy firms. So here uh, we have some more commentary here, I guess. Uh, this is uh, Business Week ran a story on Intershop titled Germany's hot star, which likened the Jena startup to HP in its early days, a crucial ingredient of Intershop's uh, standing among analysts and investors 
was that as opposed to many other german startups it had early on focused on its presence in the us market so this is the comment that i was talking about robert uh you know that they actually went overseas market i don't know whether you would call that as as personal sell but i think in my mind they went out of their way to sell in some other market and that's why they were valued so high that's very different than you know selling any old neighborhood um to people like you uh here uh some more commentary here so after the firm lost 70% of its stock market value on a single j early in 2001 some more comments here it was less that the firm had withheld bad news from its investors okay lawsuits and criminal prosecution ensued in the following years all three founders resigned from intershops active management and then uh, all of them left i think scamback uh, you know he is the one who founded and he was the ceo he founded two more companies later on and and uh, your uh, demandware uh was his company as well before selling to sales so obviously he was very smart no questions there yeah i think uh, i think that in particular that particular action is very endemic in the german culture as that period of time so in the the 90s and the early 2000s there there was a uh culture within german corporations to not provide the the transparency that was expected of the investor community you know we actually saw the same kind of thing happen in vw twice interesting so do you want to provide some more colors there in terms of sure. like I mean, so okay. vw back in the 90s actually encountered the largest uh currency swap loss in history and tried to hide it and when german regulators found out because the exposure the banking department and the german regulators found out what they had done they realized oh man you're you're hiding the true risk that investors are having with the company i see and and a lot of people got fired for that and it actually caused a change in regulations in germany the same thing happened again at vw with their blue diesel technology and the yeah. reporting here in the US of the particulate matter from the emissions and so they had actually uh, adjusted their computer technology to um cheat the emissions testing so their vehicles could be sold and so you know we have seen this in a couple of companies from Germany so you know looking at this and looking at what VW did and a couple of others it was a normal practice to not be as transparent when we went through that pain here in the US and they were just kind of dragged back into it very interesting uh, details there thank you so much robert for that so let's look at some of the demos and uh, you know when i look at the product and the screens obviously everybody is going to claim that they are all headless uh, you know even intershop is claiming that they are headless as well even their customers seem to be referring it as the headless platform so here they are talking about page variant so one of the differences that i have personally noticed in this and i don't know if they are also able to do at the component level so when you look at the newer headless platforms one of the differences and and during those days this might be the coolest technology obviously that you are able to swap out pages based on the the audience and the persona but now what uh, companies can do is they can actually swap out the individual component on a, a page in their case they can probably do just the header and footer uh, as well as the the main content block 
uh, that's what I guess these guys can do. But now when you look at the, the true composable commerce, you can swap out whatever, um, you know, inside your page or any pages. Um, that's where the real power is of decomposable commerce. But even I, I can almost guarantee that these guys are going to claim that, you know, we are composable. Com- <laughs> but the degree yeah, of composability and, matters too. And, you know, composable commerce is a fantastic tool. Yeah. It's, it's essentially multivariant testing, right? And unfortunately, it's progressing faster than many organizations are capable of utilizing it correctly. You know, you'll you'll end up getting some organizations that buy the sales pitch, but don't implement the staff and the processes and the understanding, the training to effectively implement it to get the full bang for your buck on this. Exactly. Could not agree more. And the more complex the platform is going to be, the more consulting help you are going to require to get the real value from it. So obviously use it only when you can afford to have it and get really good consultants who really know what they are doing. Uh, Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm going to stay on my soapbox for like two seconds here. What I have seen in the last 10 years is companies have a tendency of creating job recs for people that can instantly deliver for a position. Yep that requires zero training. And so essentially what you're asking is you're asking for an individual who has built an organization previously similar to yours to come into yours and do it again. And from, from a personal development standpoint, I would ask myself, I've done that. I'm ready to move for my next stage, right? My career is, is, is a, a vertical progression. Why do I want to step back and do it again? And so I think companies really need to embrace the concept of continually training your staff for staff progression, staff replacement, staff knowledge to keep your company in the forefront or close follow to your competition so you're not getting into a bidding war for an an individual that may not exist. Yeah, great point. Uh, Thank you so much for bringing that up. So if you don't have anything else, some more commentary. Uh, on uh, this functionality. So a couple of things that you're going to notice from the composable commerce perspective, you will be able to publish each of the components uh, for a a specific time box. Here, what you are doing is you are publishing that, uh, you know, you are publishing a page as opposed to publishing a component. So that's where the real differentiation is in my mind uh, of some of the newer uh, composable commerce uh, platforms versus this obviously this is not going to be as friendly it is not going to be as open uh, the other platforms are going to be very react based where you have um, you know everything available to your developers here you are sticking to a very uh, you know rigid ide that robert pointed out and then you need to really know what you are doing inside that and you might not even have as much document available whenever you are going to use any sort of community centric product uh, you are probably going to have a lot more document available. Um, so pay attention to that. Um, some more commentary overall in terms of the functionality. Uh, so here I sort of like the way their structure is overall navigational structure and the way they are swapping out. Uh, but again, this must be hard during those days. It's no longer hard uh, if you compare this with some of the other platforms that we have in the market as of today. Um now, this is a very interesting uh, data model, and we saw this data model even in the case of Demandware, just because the founder was same, 
So I think, you know, obviously you are going to get some, some ideas carried over uh, when these founders move from company to, uh, to other company. But here, the, the biggest power that you're going to see is going to be in terms of the number of channels that this platform can support and the number of variants that you're going to require when you are talking about catalogs, price lists. That's where the real com- complexity is in terms of the uh, e-commerce platforms. So here we are talking about product one, product bundle. And then you have the retail sets, which is going to have very different pricing. It's going to have very different assortment of these SKUs. And then you have the product variation as well. So again, you know, during those days, it must have been really hard. But now a lot of platforms can accommodate this level of complexity. Uh, uh, and then you have the fallback, uh, fallback pages as well. And those are going to be your backup pages. But again, you know, when you look at the composable commerce experience, then you are looking at fallback option for each of the component and there could be a million component on your page. I don't know why you would have that, <laughs> but that's the kind of composability um, that we are talking about. Um, some more commentary here overall in terms of their uh, indexes. And I don't know why they would do this. And I don't know, uh, Robert, if you have to look into this. Uh, or may have any sort of perspective why they have to build these indexes. And most likely, it's probably going to be because of the legacy uh, technology. It almost seems like they are building the, these cattle, uh, these indexes for each of the pages as well as the backup pages. So the reason you would build these indexes is for search. When you have a lar- large enough catalog, you know, when we think about manufacturers and the all the variations that go into it, you want you're going to index all of these to make sure that when somebody types it, because we know just just as a course of business, the average user is not going to navigate through your navigational architecture. They may go one or two clicks, get a little frustrated because each each organization is going to have a, a, a different standard for their architecture. So they're going to instantly go to the search and they expect that their search term is going to return within the first couple of results what they're looking for. Google-esque, if, if you will. Well, the only time that you can do that in a, in a uh, timely manner is if you create an ungodly number of emails. Because essentially this is a huge SQL query, right? Right. So obviously that's going to be definition of the indexes, but I don't know if I have seen any platforms doing it explicitly. Uh, you know, here you are literally creating your indexes. So again, I think the newer platforms can probably per- create the indexes automatically, yep. uh, you know, based on your product description or whatever. And then if you need any sort of flexibility and that we saw in the case of Oro Commerce as well. Uh, if you remember that you had a little flexibility in terms of how you want to sort of structure no. the search results. Uh, we had there in case of HCL Commerce where you could sort of pin the product, but, you know, like manually building the indexes? <laughs> Not well, so sure. What, what I've seen, um, and I, I am, you know, not, uh, you know, the expert in databases, but what I have seen is there's two versions of this. If you're going with a relational database, yes, like they are, you have to have these indexes. Faster solution will extrapolate that into a NoSQL, which is extremely fast, extremely big, but extremely fast. So I would suspect that the newer solutions, at least based here in the US, for their search technology, extrapolate the data out into a NoSQL database so they can get extremely fast results. 
Um, so I am going to provide some clarification there overall. Okay, so when you are looking at any sort of transactional applications, uh, when you are looking at e-commerce, ERP-centric applications, they are probably going to be built on the relational. Yeah. Typically, the NoSQL databases are going to be slightly superior for analytics. Uh, okay, they are meant for the data warehouse when you are using them for the study because there is going to be a little compromise there in terms of whether you want the guaranteed uh, sort of, uh, you know, relatability uh, of the data set that you have or you care more for the analytics. So that's where the difference in perspective is. Uh, you know, from the indexing perspective, I'm not too sure. Uh, and by the way, see right now, if you look at uh, databases like Snowflake, they can do both the row and the column uh, databases. And that's so the newer databases can support a lot of them together as part of one database. Uh, but again, I don't think that is going to be there in the older technology. Uh, you know, even in the relational databases, you had to build the indexes uh, because yep. the default indexes are going to be based on your primary key. But then you have to build the additional indexes. In general, you are going to get a lot of things out of the box uh, because, you know, most of the people are probably going to have similar search needs. So that's why the companies are going to provide the default indexes. But then if you need to sort of make the customizations on top of that, you can do that. But again, I have not seen it provided as part of the UI where you have everything and you sort of are building the indexes. So that's where I would be confused. But great commentary. Thank you so much. Uh, sorry, go ahead. You have a comment? No, no, no. I, I think we're on the same page. It's, you know, there was a period in time that most web applications were moving towards a NoSQL because it was a lot faster. And I think hardware caught up and, and uh, search query design caught up to bridge that gap. And so where we are today, I, it's been a few years since I've actually built a, a web application that, you know, has the number of threads necessary to, to do something about that. So I, you know, I, I think most of the modern uh, databases are capable of handling that kind of volume and they just make up for it in hardware. Yeah, interesting commentary there. Uh, thank you so much, Robert, for that. Um, so now we have some very interesting features that, that I have personally never seen in any of the platform. So this is going to be cashback settings. Uh, okay, obviously cashback is very popular when we think of codes. Uh, you know, that's where you are going to get cashback. Uh, but this is the functionality that, I mean, we have seen promos, discounts, but nobody has really called them out as cashback. And here, the way the functionality is going to work is you are going to get a cashback. You are going to have a date associated with that, that you can utilize the cash. Within that time frame, you are not able to do that. It's going to expire. So you require a little bit of workflow around that. And this uh, platform seems to have that functionality built uh, as part of the, I don't know, uh, you know, whether the industries that they are operating in, they have a lot of cashback. My suspicion is going to be probably fashion apparel. That's where the cashback is going to be common. Uh, I don't know if contractors are going to be excited about cash. <laughs> so this is very interesting. It's, I think it just has to do with the market. You have to know your market and what is going to motivate them more, right? Yeah. So, you know, there there is an entire philosophy around cashback, rebates, multi-pay. Yeah. And, you know, it, it really depends on your customer base, which is going to motivate them more. Yeah, exactly. Great. Thanks so much, Robert. Um, so moving right along here, and this is also, this is overall the depiction of uh, how much analytics that they have provided um, using those cashback redemption that is there at the account level as well. Again, extremely fascinating for me because I've personally never seen uh, this functionality in any other uh, platform. Uh, I would think, I, if I remember correctly, I think Fabric had the most uh, or the deepest functionality overall from the API perspective 
they probably have this uh, but other than that i don't know if any other platforms are going to um so now some customer logos as well as some uh, functionality so here we are talking about master purchase agreements uh, and master purchase agreements is, are very common in the trade centric industries uh, and these guys seem to have functionality for that um, and again my guess probably is going to be that when you are thinking of master purchase agreement you are probably going to find this in uh, the case of probably i don't know maybe uh, infor sxe but that is more of the erp platform not necessarily the e-commerce platform as well as you are probably going to find this in apicore p21 um, so there is always a little thin line uh, between what you keep inside your e-commerce uh, versus erp but master purchase agreement is very interesting functionality uh, the approval processes are very 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 common in this space when you are going to have so many different catalogs uh, different countries uh, product release process obviously the approval process is going to be extremely common uh, now custom purchasing limits per order or buyer uh, that's very interesting as well oci punch out uh, and this is something that we have seen in the case of spiker uh, and this is going to be functionality when your customers want to integrate this in their punch out system for example let's say if you want to integrate this with your ariba kupas of the world uh, you know that you might already have so that you don't have to go to another platform so this becomes very 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 interesting you know when you are going to have let's say 10000 vendors and if you have 10000 portals <laughs> you are probably dead in keeping track of just the urls of those vendors um, so obviously you want to make sure that this can be seamlessly integrated with your punch out system if you are going to have that so that is the functionality that we have seen in most uh, b2b platforms so which is very interesting uh, overall um and the logos i think robert you have done a wonderful job in walking through these logos any other commentary here no no okay uh, so some customer stories uh, so some commentary uh, from the customer and obviously they have a lot of case studies there because they have been in the market for a very long time so here they are talking about implemented a new product information management system um, and they have the product management system uh, as part of their bundle Uh, but in this in their case i guess they have implemented it as best of breed uh, and here the customer commentary is you know it is headless so they are feeling that this platform is headless and i'm pretty sure the headless vendors are probably not going to agree with this uh, you know they are probably going to call it clunky uh, but that's okay you can call yourself headless offers a back end and a front end adjustments can be easily made by customizing certain style elements such as header and footer and that's what i would guess that you know the only thing you can customize is header and footer so it's not really your composable experience sure you have a little composability there <laughs> but that's nothing close to what today's composable uh, platforms are going to do um, some more commentary we have a lot of data from buyers and 3 million readers uh, of magazines and a lot of information from logistics there are plenty of opportunities to communicate with customers in a relevant and timely manner the crm and bi integration will help to further strengthen uh, customer satisfaction and exploit uh, up and cross selling potentials through extensive segmentation and personalization so obviously the personalization and segmentation that you are doing you know it's 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 basic uh, because with the other platform you are going to get far more but when i look at the volume okay 3 million readers that's a lot okay that's a massive massive lift so obviously they are installed at a very large company and this is a very interesting space because this is more of a book store so it's not your traditional commerce so 
I need to I need to go back and and raise this little flag if you'll allow me momentarily. Yeah, yeah. So you had mentioned that they had the you know you you were talking about how they had the functionality where you could adjust the page, the unit, you know, the yeah. start date, the end date, which which is a great piece of functionality. But there's a piece of process behind there that is huge that we're really not talking about here, right? So when you think about marketing, right, because in the background of this particular page, um, it says page variation, personalization, promotion campaigns, A-B testing, versioning, right? So the whole point of, of having this information on the page really is for the inbound, right? It's the content marketing that when people are actually in, in the intent of yeah. searching for a solution, yeah. that your content will rise up. Long-tail yep. keywords are going to rise up and you're going to present yourself as one of the top solutions for this. If you are suddenly changing a page on a particular date, yeah, you will not have had that page re-scraped and re-categorized by the search engine to show up to maintain that positioning. So when you change that page on, let's say it's changing on Friday, you can't say, hey, Google, I'm changing my page at 10 a.m. on Friday. Please, please, you know, rescan it and, you know, make sure that I'm up to date. It's going to go by this old technology. And so there's going to be a period of time from, from an inbound perspective that you're going to lose that traffic because it's going to change the keywords. It's going to change the weighting. It's, it potentially could change the inbound traffic that you get for that particular change. So the way that you compensate for that is your outbound, right, your advertising. And, you know, that's a process. That's that's a process from the marketing standpoint, making sure that these are a coordinated activity that, to make sure that it doesn't impact your sales. And a lot of people don't connect those two dots. They're like, oh, yeah, you know, we need to change this piece and they're just going to go ahead and change it. And they don't understand where where the downstream effect of that is is going to lead them. Just putting it out there. So that's a very interesting commentary, and I want to touch a little bit more there so that listeners are sort of comfortable with that. So so the reason why I find it interesting is because a lot of people, when they think about personalization, they don't really think from Google's perspective. Okay, and Google perspective is equally critical as well, and that's a, um, that you are trying to make. So let's say if you have a page and you are changing it completely up, then that's it. Google is going to be done with you. Because Google does not like, okay, uh, today I'm ranking you for, I don't know, maybe e-commerce platform. And tomorrow you are going to call yourself as WMS. I'm not going to like it uh, because I expect when you are an ERP comp- or e-commerce company, you be that, you know, every single day. Okay. But yep. personalization is going to be important, Robert. Okay. The way personalization and, and there is a subtle art there in terms of personalization. You are not supposed to be changing everything about the page, okay? Mm-hmm. Typically, what you want to do is, let's say today is Christmas, and I want to make sure I have a little flavor of Christmas. So it's not that you are changing the whole product architecture there. You are simply aligning it with Christmas, or and that's why you have date there, because you want to have Black Friday theme, you want to have Christmas theme, and that is going to be very common. But I completely agree that personalization, you need to think through about the process, you know, how you are going to do the personalization, what may be good from the user's perspective may not be as great from Google's perspective. Yeah. And and so what they showed here is from a composable commerce standpoint, I'm going to change a module. Yeah. Right? You know, I'm not going to change the entire page. 
I'm not going to change the URL. I'm not going to change the, the H1 tags. I'm not going to change the, the, the major content. I'm just going to maybe change some variants, right? So let's say, you know, um, I still have the hoodie that I wear in the fall, but instead of us having red, blue, green, and yellow, we change, you know, the, those colors are no longer in season. So we get rid of the yellow and we add chartreuse. Yeah. Green and chartreuse. Okay. Google's not going to freak out about that. But if you change the entire page, which is what that represented, yep. that's a whole different ball of wax. Just one uh, quick clarification there, I guess, that is going to be helpful here as well. So if we are thinking that this platform is probably going to be for B2B, that means these are probably going to be logged in. Now, when you talk about personalization, in the case of B2B versus B2C, that's a very different experience. Yep. In the case of B2C, the users are not going to be logged in. The pages are going to be open. But in the B2B, I mean, it's all logged in. It's all locked. It's not going to Google. So this is a very different ballgame. And I think these guys are targeting for B2B where users are logged in. So Google's uh, you know, positioning is probably uh, not going to be as relevant in this particular. Well, from a marketing standpoint, B2B still start, you know, they're, they're still the intention model of the B2B buyer, right? Yeah. So they're unaware. They become aware that they have a problem. They need to go search for understanding their problem. Then they need to find a solution for the problem. Then they need to find the product for their solution. You know, who within the organization is going to be doing that? It's most likely the analyst, not the executives. The analyst is going to go do that searching. And then he's going to present that finding to the executive committee. And then they're going to reach out to the salesperson and, and start the RFI and all that other fun stuff. So I think there is a component to Google in B2B. Yes, there is definitely is. Yes. So let's say the pages that are going to be open, you know, uh, that are going to be open for Google, obviously, they are going to be indexed on Google. But once the customer actually comes in and they are searching yep. for the products inside the platform, that's a very different experience. That is probably going to be inside the logged platform because obviously in the case of B2B, you are not necessarily showing your prices because pricing is going to be very different for every single Distributor yeah. and dealers that yeah because from from the b2b perspective you know you're, you're going to have the marketing which is going to draw them in to create the lead and then sales will take over right and that that's fine you know but we we need to understand that changing things wholesale if you don't already have that lead and you're trying to generate more in the, the upper funnel that's kind of a problem yeah exactly but i mean that's a very interesting layer i personally enjoyed it because you know obviously when you think about personalization you don't think from Google's perspective. So thank you so much uh, for bringing that. Uh, any other uh, comments, Robert, uh, on no, this sir. one? Nope. Okay, uh, very interesting. So that's it uh, for today. Uh, guys, if you joined for the first time, this was part of our for which we meet every Wednesday at uh, 5.30 p.m. Uh, Eastern. Uh, we review one vendor or the solution. So make sure you guys are going to be here next week. We are going to come back with another vendor or the solution. On that note, Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Thank you all. I cannot thank our guests enough for coming on the show, for sharing their knowledge and journey. I always pick up learnings from our guests, and hopefully you learned something new today. If you want to learn more about Robert Brown, head over to rgbecommerce.com. It's rgbecommerce.com. Links and more information will also be available in the show notes. If anything in this podcast resonated with you and your business, you might want to check other related episodes, including the interview with Erica Salm Ranch, who shares her insights on how AI can be used to improve customer engagement. Also, the interview with Noemi Kiss, 
who shares her insights into how the water industry works and how its sales cycle differs from other industries. Also, don't forget to subscribe and spread the word among folks with similar backgrounds. If you have any questions or comments about the show, please review and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform or DM me on any social channels. I'll try my best to respond personally and make sure you get help. Thank you and I hope to catch you on the next episode of the WBS Podcast. Thank you for listening to another episode of the WBS Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform so you never miss an episode. For more information on growth strategies for SMBs using ERP and digital transformation, check out our community at wbs.rocks. We'll see you next time.